0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I like how Autumn made the connection between taking that promise of Scripture that God says, how can I let you go? And it was a little bit tricky what she did. Because <laughs> she, she helped all of us take that promise on for ourselves. Then she reminded us that if you want to take that promise on for yourself, you must be willing to extend it to the people next to you who you sometimes, let's face it, you think you're a little bit better than they are (laughs) for whatever reason. Whether it's because they're holding up that cardboard sign by the, the freeway, because they're in a a different building this morning or no building at all, uh, the truly invisible ones. Um, it, it's, it's just hand in glove with all that we've talked about right from the very beginning of this series when we started with the first words of Scripture about creation, how being made in the image of God is a, is a beautiful privilege that we should take for ourselves and and it should empower us to to, to do so many things. But you can't only take it for yourself. You must also extend it to those around you. Um, that kind of thing, that way of thinking, that concept is, is really at the heart of what I have sort of come to understand justice to mean. Well... Um, Yesterday, we went to the store, and um, kids wanted us to buy them something, which never ceases. They always want you to buy them something. And so we bought them something fairly inexpensive and and nice, and not plastic, uh, at least not much, um, which was a a pack of Play-Doh. You know, at Target, those four packs, those little four tubs of Play-Doh is like two or three dollars. It's a really good buy. And... I don't know about you, but the the kid in me still loves a brand new tub of Play-Doh, right? Completely unsullied. And so we sat my two-year-old son down with with one of the Play-Dohs, just one color. And uh, he didn't just want one color. So uh, while I was in the kitchen, or this never would have happened, (laughs) his brother came and opened the other three tubs for him, Of Plato, and I came out less than ten minutes later, and this is what I saw. Um, (laughs) And I was like, right? And Tracy said, "Welcome to Daddy's worst nightmare." (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, just just like a minute or two later, he had worked it even more. Uh, And there's (laughs) at this point, there's really no going back right? There's no putting that back in the tubs. I mean, you can, but then the color of the lid is completely irrelevant. <laughs> right, he had made tie-dye Play-Doh, right? <laughs> so I have this, uh, um, I have this inherent sense with Plato, and I'm, I mean, let's be honest, it's a sermon, I'm going to transition this to something, um, But with Plato, that this doesn't belong with this, right? These two things are supposed to be separate, right? The yellow is holy unto the bananas, (laughs) and the blue is holy unto the Smurfs, (laughs) right? They should be separate. And uh, um, it really did start me thinking about uh, how we kind of have those conceptions about community as well, that... Uh, we wouldn't come out and say it, but we want our our communities, we, we don't necessarily like to homogenize them, because <laughs> it gets a little ugly and messy and intermingled. And, uh, it's, it's, and it's not just about um, the color of our skin. It's not, that's not the point I'm trying to make. It really is about so much more than that. But as Autumn illustrated with her meditation, and as we've looked at throughout this series, if we are God people, we have to accept the fact and embrace the fact that all of us are God people. And not just all of us, but all of them too. And it's not just enough to accept it, and it's not just enough to embrace it. As God people, we are actually called commanded to bring that reality about. That is the reality that he wants to create in us. That is part of what it means for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And I often talk about how we want to pull that that future reality into the present. We talked about that last week when we were talking about the eschaton, the, the, the spiritual ending of everything. But I think it's actually more than that. It's not just that we want to pull that into our present. That is our role. We do participate in that, but it's God's pull on us that initiates that whole thing. So today we are, we've extended the series one week because I realized as I was prepping last week's message on the, the gospels and the eschaton that we never really talked about how justice was worked out in the early church. And so I wanted to do this today to, to cover that because I think it's an important um, and pretty neat lesson So if you were to go and look in the Bible and try to figure out what is going on in the early church, there's two ways you can do that. The first way is you can look at the book of Acts, fully known as the Acts of the Apostles. In other words, this is the story of how the church was formed uh, after the resurrection and the ascension, um, the the giving of the Holy Spirit, the formation of community, the spreading of the gospel um, throughout the whole world. That's the first way you can look at it. And the second way is to look at the epistles, which um, are letters, the letters that um, mostly Paul wrote to the churches that had formed. And so you get a little bit of story, and then you get a little bit of, um, it's almost like a, like a primary source document. You look back and, um, I'm not a researcher, but I think I'm using that term correctly, that you look back and say, here's an actual correspondence between a person and a, and, and a church. What can we learn about what was going on at that time by reading this, this document? So there's two ways you can do that. And um, although the epistles, that second way, the letters, really do have some interesting things to say about justice. For example, one of our favorite verses, Galatians 3.28, that talks about how in Christ there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and female. I mean, that's, that's justice right there. That's this whole leveling of the playing field. Um, and that, that does recur throughout the epistles. But what I want to focus on today is actually the first, first way of understanding what's going on in the early church, and that is the book of Acts. So I have three um, quick stories from the book of Acts that I want to share this morning, one from Acts 11, one from Acts 13, and one from Acts 15. Um, <clears throat> so let's start with Acts 11. And uh, I'm going to look at the whole passages versus... Um, I think, it's, I think I may have put that wrong on the screen. I think it starts with 19, but I'll find the Bible here and we'll figure it out. Just um, <clears throat> make sure I've got it right here for you. Yeah, it's actually, it actually should start with verse 19. Thank you. Um, and I'll read through 27, and then we'll look at 28 through 30 as well. But what we find here in this passage is is what I would call some identity markers for what it meant to be a Christian. And you'll find in, the, in this story something really interesting about what it means to be called a Christian. So let's read Acts 11, starting with verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen, which is events that, that don't actually pertain directly to this, so if you don't know what that means, that's okay, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. Christianity being a sect of Judaism, this would make sense. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. That's a way of saying the Greeks. Proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, which would have been the center of Judaism, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians." So in this story, we see a couple of things happening. You see, you see the gospel being spread to all people. You see these early Christians uh, extending beyond the walls of, of their understanding by sharing this good news with Hellenists, with the Greeks, the Gentiles, and then rejoicing at their conversion, which, I, I mean, I, I feel like I say this a lot, but that's, that is no small thing. For us, I'm pretty sure that almost all, if not all of us, are, are Gentile by birth. So for us to, uh, to be Christians, to hear this message of God at this point in history, is really not a big deal. Right? That's sort of almost expected now because there are very few um, pockets of faith that really embrace Judaism and Christianity at the same time. There are a couple, but... But this is a monumental kind of thing. And uh, you see a similar story in Acts 10, and, and this becomes a big, big part of what the early church has to work out. So they're in this, this uh, Gentile city, this intermingled city of Antioch. And this is where they're first called Christians. So let's read on and read 27 through 30. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world, and this took place during the raid of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So here you see another identity marker for, for the early Christians. The first was that this was... this. This gospel message was extending to everybody. And the second one here, which is not the only place you see it, certainly, but you see compassion for those who are in need and a willingness to give of themselves to help other people. And again, all of this is happening in Antioch. It's very interesting to me. So what did this culture create Again, it says they stayed for a year and taught, and many people became believers. Let's go on to Acts 13, and I just have a few, the first few verses of, of Acts 13 that I'd like to read. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, if you don't know the Bible, you may, not, you may not make this connection, but Saul became known as Paul later. And Paul is the one I said a minute ago wrote most of the uh, epistles. So he's, uh, he's, a, he's the Ron Burgundy here. He's kind of a big deal. right? <laughs> And he and Barnabas are sent out from, from this city. So I want to make two quick observations about this, and then really Acts 15 is where the rubber hits the road. But in that first verse, you see something, um, if you look at it carefully, that um, echoes and extends the first verses of what we saw in Acts 11. Look at the names of the people who were there. We know Barnabas. He was the one who was sent down from Jerusalem. right? Simeon, who was called Niger, um, Niger is a, a, would probably have been a nickname for somebody with very dark complexion. So Simeon is probably an African Christian. Lucius of Cyrene would have been a Greek. And Menean is a, is a Greekified version of a Hebrew name. Uh, and this guy was in the court of Herod the ruler. Now, not King Herod, but still not like your best friend Herod. So just in this one little sentence... If you're a Christian, he certainly wasn't your best friend. He might have been your best friend if you didn't like Christians. I don't know, but you have the 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 key Jewish leader at the time. Now, Paul hadn't become the you know the big deal just yet. Um, Simeon, the the African, the Greek person, and a member of the court of the ruler. So probably like a not only this multi ethnic picture, but also a, a a wide-range socioeconomically of people. And it's not just that these were the Christians. What does the verse say that they were? Prophets, Prophets and teachers, right? So they had risen to positions of importance and significance within the community. Um. Apparently, there was no problem with them having taken these kind of positions of authority despite the fact that they were not what probably the original Jewish Christians had in mind for how God wanted to work out this story for them. And then the last thing is, it, it, we, we've seen a little uh, whispers of this throughout so far, but they send out Barnabas and Saul, who came to be known as Paul, the two key missionaries of the church, were sent out from what city? From Antioch. Not from Jerusalem, which was really, should have been the epicenter of this, this movement, but from Antioch, again, this intermingled Gentile-ish city. And it wasn't just that they got sent out there, by the way. They actually returned there from their journeys, and it, was, it was, became their base of operations, Antioch. Again, there's, this is one of those things. I I, I feel like a broken record saying this, too, but there are so many things about the story of Jesus and the story of the church that that don't go the way... They would have been written if somebody was probably just making up a story, like to try to gain power or whatever. If they're somebody's just making up a religion, trying to fool people, I don't think they would have written this story quite like this. These little tiny details do actually matter. They do actually give us hints that, of, that they, have, they have the ring of truth, if you will. So let's move on to Acts 15. Because this is where I want to spend a minute or two. So this whole Gentiles converting to Christianity thing had become uh, a problem. Not, not all the apostles and early believers took it as well as, as Barnabas had taken it in Antioch that Gentiles were starting to become Christians. In fact, there were um, there were Christian Pharisees. That sounds like an oxymoron to us, but there were Pharisees who, they were, you know, because Pharisee uh, now has this sort of second and, and broader layer of meaning. We call somebody Pharisaical if they're really overly concerned with rules and so forth. But the Pharisees was just a particular group within Judaism. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, had their head up um, completely. (laughs) But there were Pharisees who became Christians. And uh, they actually, in this case, were among those who had a, a little bit of trouble with this. So I want to read this story, Acts 15, the first two verses, and then 6 through 19. And then I want to talk about this together. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, I just need to pause here for a minute in case there's anybody in the room who doesn't know what this is talking about. Um, I think most of you probably do, but in case anybody doesn't, this would be very weird. But circumcision was the sign of the, the covenant that God made with his people Israel. And so Abraham... Um, and all of his household, every male in his household was circumcised. This was the sign of the uh, relationship and agreement that he had with God. And it was really the the most, um, I'm trying not to be double entendre here, but it was the most obvious indication that somebody was Jewish. And so what's, what's at heart here is that do we have to make a Gentile a Jew before we make him a Christian? And I... Deliberately don't use him or her in this case, because, well. um, So they came down and said, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. Jump with me to verse 9, please. Is it 9? 9 is not right. 6. Uh, That's what I get for trying to use my memory. It's upside down in there. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon had related, and that's that's Peter, has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written. And here he's quoting. After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. And here's the key. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. And then he goes on to to put some restrictions on this. Um, We should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. Now that gets... um, really messy at the end there. Uh, I think what he's referring to is, is uh, pagan temple rituals, and he's trying to, to tell these Gentiles that this is the one thing you really do have to observe. You, you, can't, you can't be a pagan and be a Christian, um, but you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. That's, that's boiling it down for me. But the, the, the key verse there, there's two, and this is why I thought verse 9, because verse 9 is one of them. If you look at verse 9, um, here's another example of the, this leveling of the playing field. In this case, the leveling of the playing field is not um, the image of God, and it's not this promise that, how could, how could I forget you? How could I let you go? from Hosea. But it's the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is the leveling of the playing field. And, and in verse 9, um, he points out God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. The the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit in these Gentile believers was enough for the leaders of the Christian church to say, yes, they are in. (laughs) Therefore, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, says, I have reached the decision, it is my judgment, he says in our translation, but I actually kind of like the NIV's translation of this. It's a a little bit more forceful, I think. I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles, that we should not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. Again, it's hard to overstate how incredible this decision was that these doors would be flung wide open. I don't think they would have done it on their own. They kind of just realized, oh, the doors have been flung wide open. Why would we then bar somebody from walking th- over the threshold? They had seen the work of the Holy Spirit in the people's lives, and they had, they had such a desire to see the gospel take root in people's lives that they completely overturned a gigantic part Of what they understood salvation to look like. Of what they understood holiness to look like. To remove circumcision from the equation was just amazing. Again, what do we care now? But you have to look at this and and understand the context and the history and say, they were essentially, I go with the double entendre, they were cutting off a whole section of the scriptures. I'm sorry, I couldn't think of another way to say it. <laughs> Actually, that's very biblical. <laughs> one of the things Paul says in the, in, the, uh, in the letters, I think this might be in Galatians, but I have to look it up to be sure, is that if you want to impose circumcision on, on these Gentile Christians, you should be cut off from Christian community. <laughs> and you read it, and you're like, you don't think of it, but he was being That was a metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't feel so bad about doing it myself. We should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. We don't care if Gentiles turn to God. We're all Gentiles. We already did it. We're happy that that was an option for us. If we were to make a blank in this sentence where it says Gentiles, what would our blank be? We should not make it difficult for blank who are turning to God. Let's take a little bit of a risk here in this room together, and, and I'm going to ask you to shout out something that would go in that blank. Who do we make it difficult to turn to God? Gay people. I suspected that might be the first thing that came out of somebody's mouth. Yeah. You've watched it for way too long. Mm-hmm. Seen it with your family and your friends, and I think that uh, increasingly more of us are are becoming aware of this—that the church has um, done a horrific job, and we have made it very difficult, maybe even impossible, for uh, LGBT persons to to turn to God. Well, who else, though? I mean, I don't want to get bogged down on that one because there's, it's not just that. People of other religions. Yeah, interesting. Why would they want to turn to God? They're from other religions. Oops, I just made it difficult on them. (laughs) My assumption made it difficult for them. Children. Children. Hmm. Do you want to say more about that? Right, yeah, yeah. Well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be it could be a couple different things with children. It could be that that the people uh, around them are not people of faith, and maybe are made it it's difficult for them in that way. Uh, or they don't want to want them to... They're people of a particular faith, and they don't want them to go in a different direction, so it's difficult. But I think it's also this um, constant need to teach and correct and make sure that our children um, know everything perfectly and experience everything and express everything perfectly and accurately. And, um, yeah, I mean, you c- a really good way to beat childlike faith out of somebody is to to force that person... To, to, into an adult faith <laughs> too early, that would be one thing. Yeah. Okay, people who are not part of the church. Yeah. Um, right. Why? Why would they ever want to be? <laughs> Sometimes I, I wonder. Um, yeah. Sketchy people. <laughs> Sketchy people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure right we have sketchy people come in here sometimes yeah there's a sketchy guy who comes in here sometimes and he kind of grunts and moans and he's unpleasant and he takes coffee and food and just sits out there for two minutes and then he leaves i'm serious there's a guy who does that have any of you ever talked to him (laughs) thank you (laughs) maybe the rest of us should sometime I mean, sometimes he's difficult to talk to. That's the way that he's sketchy, perhaps. Yeah. People People who've made mistakes. Mm. That's a big one. That is a big one. I mean, not the the lesser mistakes are okay. I'm fine with that. God's grace is big enough for the lesser mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Right, I mean, imagine the, the least desirable person that you don't want anything to do with. That's probably what a lot of us would come up with. Right. Yeah. People with addictions and mental illness, that's another huge one. Yeah, I mean, those because those are, those are problems that, that when we're honest with ourselves... Like, just getting them to believe something about Jesus doesn't make that problem go away. And that's, that's uncomfortable for us. So it would be easier if they just weren't here at all. We wouldn't have to face that reality. Yeah. Well, did you have one? Yeah, right? None of us should be here. That's right, that's right. You might not realize it, but yeah. we all live with- S- Some people are addicted to Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Need to repent. <laughs> some, sketchy some sketchy people preach, yes, in other churches they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, we could go on. And here's just one problem that we sometimes have. We say, we should not make it difficult for those, fill in the blank, who are turning to God, and then we add something. You always are in trouble when you're adding a but to to the words of Scripture that are that clear. We should not make it difficult for, fill in the blank, to turn to God, but we have to be careful not to compromise biblical truth. Let me just say one thing about that, because you've heard that argument before, right? What if we started with Acts fifteen nineteen as the biblical truth? <laughs> and then whatever the biblical truth is that somebody wants to, to, to shove at you when you want to be welcoming to someone, you can say, well, yes, we have to consider that passage of Scripture, but I wouldn't want to compromise biblical truth. <laughs> for me, the biblical truth being we should not make it difficult for people to turn to God. Well... That concludes our series on justice. <laughs> I don't know about you, but for me, my understanding of justice and kind of maybe how I would define it has changed a little bit um, throughout this series. I started out thinking about justice, and our role in bringing it about is mainly, uh, was mainly as sort of an advocacy role. Like, we should advocate for justice. Do you understand why that's so screwed up? We should advocate for justice for those people. Let's advocate for them. Who, the, the ones out there who need justice. right because you can't advocate for someone you don't love you can't love somebody you're not in a relationship with you can't be in a relationship with someone who's not even next to you so let's like trying to advocate for somebody just for justice for somebody in our community if they're not here with us in relationship with us is just like trying to to high jump 45 feet you're never going to clear that bar because you it's just you can't do it. For me, my understanding of justice has changed, and now I think it's really about we need to be willing to welcome what, what I, uh, I and others have started to use this phrase, the other, capital T, capital O, the other. People who are different from us. And not just different from us, but they're, they're from a different place. And not just a different geographical place. Do you see what I'm saying? They are other and we have to welcome them into our community life and all of you and, and and I have to welcome them into our actual lives too. Because otherwise we are never going to get to the place of, of living out the value as we've stated it, of of, of being captivated by the heart of God for a suffering creation and, and the pain that people are in and, and seeking to, to bring a just end to those causes. I mean, that's so abstract if there's no relationship that goes with it. And I, I kind of want to like redefine our statement about justice. I don't don't want to have it not be a value for us, but I want to redefine the statement someday, probably soon, so that it really does encourage us to, to be in relationship with people, because that's where it has to start. It's never going to happen abstractly. Right. Right, It can't just be just. It's not a state of being. It's a state of doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Thank you. But it's, of course, like, yes. Well, no. So um I just came back from a conference, and I'm a gynecologist. So we went to a conference where several thousand gynecologists all went to New Orleans to learn. And and then there are these. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I have no <laughs> idea what it is. <laughs> Uh-huh. We're at a conference, no one's doing anything. Yeah. And all they're really doing is making them, every guy a the script the other way and walk away from right. them. Right? Right. Their messages were lost. Mm-hmm. Whether you agree on it or not, sure. but that whole form with those pictures and all those things isn't really providing justice. No. It's they really in the separation in the That's right. That's right. An American—I don't want to. Believe me, I don't want to wade into the the waters uh, of a discussion about abortion. But, but American uh, culture is so much more stridently divided about this than than say European culture is, um, and it's because nobody wants to give an inch, and everybody is the, is the enemy in this argument, in this debate, and right the, that you're never going to be able to work for justice in that way. And many people do consider that a justice matter. I, I think I do as well. Um, but if you're if you're unwilling to have any kind of relationship uh, surrounding the debate. Yeah, Brenda? But, you know, that it's good that you say this, but I I was one who thought about other people, but one of the other people that we always forget is the elderly. Mm. I'm glad you said that. You said the elderly. <laughs> I, we're going to talk about the elderly in just a second as I wrap up here, because I think we have some practical steps to take. What I was about to say is that I don't think there's necessarily a magic bullet for this relationship stuff. I do think that's where it needs to start but I don't know exactly how to do it. Um, but one of the things that we did a couple weeks ago when I was away, Shane and Jenny moderated a discussion and many of you were here for that. Um, and following that discussion we we, uh, we received word from people in the, in the group discussions about what kinds of areas they might like to work for justice and, and the elderly was one of them. Um, homeless was one of them. Uh, I think nutrition was one. Women was one. um, Education was one. In fact, I have the the little poll that we then handed out to the congregation um, in the weeks that followed. Uh, And so I have this. If you haven't yet seen this and put your name and email address in a little checkbox on this, I'm going to put them on the communion table. And whether whether or not you're going to take communion today, um, you can can come up and take one of these uh, because you need to that's the, that's the next step. Again, I don't know what the magic bullet is, but this is our next step. This is our next swing of the bat. We may miss, but we are going to keep swinging until we make contact on this. So this week, actually, Shane and Jenny sent out emails to all the, the groups of people who are interested in these different issues, and the elderly was one of them. Uh, thank you for remembering that. And uh, so you can easily get involved in these conversations just to get the ball rolling. That's what's coming Next. Um, so if you haven't yet filled one of those out, do it. The one that's not on there is... is um, oh, no, it is on there. Never mind. Forget it. So that's our, that's our action item for this morning. Um, if you haven't already received an email, and, but you want to work for justice and, and build relationships in one of these areas, um, this is the way to get that, that going, and you'll be hearing a lot more about it as, as our life goes on over the next few weeks and months. So uh, let's pray together. God, thank you for the words of Scripture from Genesis all the way to the end and uh, for the, the story that is so consistently told throughout that all people are made in your image, that you love us all, that you give the Holy Spirit indiscriminately, rich and poor, black and white, Jew and Gentile, gay and straight, American, and other. Forgive us for the ways that we, we, we rebuild the walls between ourselves that you have broken down in Christ. And don't let us be content with your forgiveness, but demand of us repentance and new action. By the power of your Spirit, would you please help us to, to construct relationships, to, to build friendship with the other to be uncomfortable so that we can truly love so that we can truly become advocates for justice and that we can truly be part of pulling your future promised reality your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven into our present day pray these things all in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we have a couple of more songs to sing together. And uh, thank you for your uh, great conversation with us this morning. That was more conversation than I was planning on, and it was wonderful. Thank you for being part of that. Um, But our communion table is open as we sing these next songs. This is another one of those levelings of the playing field. Jesus extended this offer of bread and wine to all of his disciples, including the one who was to betray him, and he offers it to all of you. And uh, the way we sometimes say this, I think I'd like to focus on this one today, is if if Jesus were here with you offering you a meal, saying, would you like to eat with me at my table? If your answer to that question would be yes, then I think communion is appropriate for you. And you can tear off the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice, whatever's more appropriate for you and for your family. If you'd like to have your kids take it with you, that's okay. You can go and get them. If you don't, please do and go and collect them as soon as you're done uh, taking communion. And don't forget to take those, uh, the little pole there and, and put it in the offering basket when it goes through later. Uh, our table's open. Let's continue to worship him together.